and uh, when he was very, very young, um, maybe about the age of five or six, he and his family migrated all the way westwards uh, to where is the city of Konya today in central Turkey. The journey actually lasted about two years, so um, he and his family experienced a lot of contact and exchange with people on their way, um, seeing many, many cultures and many, many languages spoken. So I believe that that played a part in the life of Jalaluddin Rumi, the poet we are talking about, in terms of showing him how diverse the world was. Um, his family was uh, highly learned and um, interested particularly in mysticism or the practice that tells us that human beings and as individuals can directly be connected with God, that God has given us um, an inner um, sacred core and, and our life could be a journey of discovering this inner core in ourselves or activating it, whatever language uh, we choose to use to talk about it. And so Rumi grew up in that environment. He got highly educated um, in the sciences of, of his time, um, partly religious, partly secular sciences. And uh, when he was around the age of 40, this wandering dervish by the name of Shams, uh, walked into um, his, I should say, office, because he actually taught in a school in Konya, and this encounter brought about a major change in Rumi's life. Um, it basically made him think about his quest, not, a, not as an intellectual quest, or not at least a merely intellectual quest, but something that he has to live. He has to live it. And so from that point on, he started writing more and more poetry. He had written some before, but this became um, more an, a more important part of his life. Uh, he started whirling, and I'm sure uh, that uh, you and the audiences have heard of the whirling dervishes uh, present day in Turkey. They're connected with that, um, with the Rumi circle. And he started whirling, and basically... His uh, thought was that the whole universe is um, alive and moving with love, and um, we should not keep quiet. We should not stay on the margins. We should join the dance. And I think that's, that's what makes him one of the most popular poets in the world today. I don't know if um, uh, you might know this, that he's actually the best-selling poet in translation in English language now. And so I think in part it's because he speaks about these very important inner yearnings that we all have as human beings. When I was growing up um, in Lahore, Pakistan, uh -huh. there was a general sense that this business of love and dance is essentially a Western notion, so that in Muslim cultures there was a clear injunction, really, that's not a very harsh word or a very strong word for it, um, that Muslims do not or should not engage in this. Uh, for example, uh, in Prophet Muhammad's life, there is, uh, to my knowledge, 
there is no good uh, reference that he engaged in dancing or dancing plus music. Now, from what you just described, Rumi then was very much into the meanings of love and life through dance and music. So please comment on it, this this prevailing notion that music and dance is a Western tradition uh, still persists in most of the Muslim world, while Rumi clearly said, uh, left behind a clear message um, that life could be understood through music and dance. Please take your time. Sure. Um, well, you know, I think a lot of um, the, the, the point you have raised is a very major point, and it should be addressed from many different perspectives. One is that really in the folk life of the Muslims, when in cities and um, provinces and all over, if you think about the diversity of the areas in which the Muslims lived, actually poetry, music, and dance did exist as a part of people's everyday culture. Um, you have a point in saying that we don't have any historical evidence that the Prophet himself engaged in it, but we certainly know that in, um, in, in the Muslim culture all over its vast areas that it geographically occupied, um, this happened. Uh, but also the whole concept of dance should be looked at very carefully. This wasn't, as far as he was concerned, this wasn't, you know, a kind of um, ecstasy that you had no limits to and you would just get up and um, just move in every direction. It was a very regulated turning um, in, inwards and turning around, around the axis of your heart. So when we use the word dance for it, we are a little bit, I don't want to say imprecise, but it, it is not dance in the very general sense that we have in mind. Certainly, when he did it in the 13th century, and we have ample evidence that he did it, there was no Western influence there in central Anatolia and in the areas around it that people followed. Um, but I should also add one other point. There is a face of Rumi that is, I would maybe call it the New Age Rumi. You know, there's a, an understanding of Rumi that almost takes away all the Islamic values and presents him as completely universal and detached from religious practice. I personally think that that's a misreading of Rumi, that he's deeply, deeply rooted in his Islamic belief. And um, so as far as he was concerned, whirling um, and turning inwards was not something that violated uh, that um, practice. But it also didn't mean that, you know, he would encourage people to um, have, uh, shall we say, unregulated, in immodest behavior. Uh, not at all. In fact, his uh, works are very much about how to conduct yourself, how to um, understand the path. But um, I would also say that... Um, he doesn't get imprisoned in that path. 
just he he loves it so much. That's a, that's really the man. That's a core point. Um, I want to, our listeners to know you're going to be in New York City in November. Are you? Yes, uh, there's this and, conference on Ibn Arabi and Rumi. And, and you I'm, are one of the speakers. Yes, I'm going And uh, that's organized by the Open Center Org. And WBL listeners know about Open Center, so I won't really tell them anything more about this. Um, so perhaps we will have some time and you can tell them a little bit more. I want to go one more time into this, um, you know, this uh, notion of ecstatic faith of Rumi. What is that all about? Um, there is a belief that not just Rumi, a lot of other mystics also share, which is um, uh, our rationality, our uh, intellect are very important, and we have to follow them. We have to um, make our decisions based on those. But these are not the only tools that we have. In fact, we have other tools that can get activated with love and ecstasy. And those gave us the courage to move forward, to, to explore areas of ourselves which we will not be able to explore if we relied only on our rationality. And I would like to emphasize this. Sometimes this is misunderstood as interpreted uh, and is interpreted as um, rationality versus Love, you know, aql versus ishq. Are we going to go for love or for rationality? I don't think that um, Rumi ever would say, uh, you know, your rationality doesn't matter or your intellect doesn't matter. But uh, he has this beautiful um, metaphors that expresses this. And in this case, he says, you know, imagine that you have a very valuable piece of fabric and you want to make it into an exquisite dress. You have to use your intellect to find the house of the best dressmaker in town. You go and find that, knock on the door, then you give the, the um, material to the dressmaker, and then you uh, wait for the dressmaker to make the dress. Now, the dressmaker is love, but um, you do not set aside your um, rationality and just go by ecstasy because... You might knock on the wrong door. Uh, you might give your life into something that is meaningless and uh, so forth. Uh, but certainly um, he believes that having the ability to feel joy, and I, and I would say joy really much more than even ecstasy. Joy is primary in, in Rumi's writings, and hope is primary. Uh, he, he says about sadness, he says, that thief, was executed on my threshold a long time ago. It calls um, sadness a thief because it steals your energy. Um, and hope and joy are things that, in fact, give you um, the energy to move forward and to rebuild yourself. Because, after all, rebuilding oneself um, isn't easy, isn't uh, something that you could just intellectually plan. You have to go through a kind of inner transformation, and then he believes that, that joy. My guest is um, Professor Fatima Kashawars. I, I will give you some information. She's going to be in New York City participating in this conference on Ibn Arabi and Rumi at Open Center November 4th and 5th, and uh, 
um, <clears throat> I will give you the number, 212-219-2527. That's the Open Center for Information. And um, um, Professor Fatima, do you have a website that you would like to refer our listeners to for further information? Oh, about uh, um, the Arabi uh, program? Is, is the, either about this program or about your other work. Well, I do have a website myself called Windows on Iran. Oh, dot Word, Windows on Iran. Okay. .wordpress.com, and on that I usually write about Iran and Iranian culture and um, so forth. Um, it's not so much about my own literary writing. It's much more connection with, you know, present-day Iran and Iranian culture. Um, but I believe you do have the website, or do you want me to give you the website for the Ibn Arabi program? Well, I think people can reach that through opencenter.org. That's correct. And then okay. there's a... You know, I would, if, if, there were, if it were possible, I really would like you to be back to discuss what you just mentioned. Um, Rumi said um, that sadness is a thief. And um, in my book of poetry, there is one particular piece about sadness. And I really do have a very different take on this. And... Um, Fully in awe of Rumi, uh, I would still like to um, challenge that notion. And since you are a Rumi scholar, you would be an excellent person to then give his, uh, uh, elaborate his point of view, and then perhaps you can show me. But that would be some other day. And I will get in touch with you. It might be actually a good subject for our listeners where he says that sadness is a thief, and uh, my life experiences taught me that sadness can be the greatest teacher and the greatest motivator to search, and eventually it comes to understanding and enlightenment and love. So let's move on. Let's talk about now, we talked about who Rami, Rumi was. Now let's talk about who Rami, uh, Rumi is uh, in terms of these major conflicts of our time. Yes, um, I think that there are um, a number of things um, about Rumi that today really appeal to us. Um, unfortunately, most of our uh, schools and universities, and I mean all over the world almost, teach literature as a kind of exotic, elitist uh, subject that's difficult and, and not so easy to, to approach. Well, his um, relationship with poetry is completely the opposite. And in fact, he has a wonderful line. Uh, he says, "Altasham garzanato yatin sohan pishtaro das andarman bezan," which is, uh, "I am warm like fire. If you are doubtful about this, just bring your hand forward." So he actually thinks of his poetry as a kind of very personal encounter with people, which goes far beyond the page the words that you intellectually read and analyze and translate and so on. And at the same time, he believes that language can change us. Speaking can change us and can change the world. Um, he says, speak a new language and the world will be a new world. So um, I think today... 
these really appeal to us because um, we feel that we are kind of getting distanced from our inner selves. We're so busy. We are um, spending so much of our time, um, you know, taking crash courses on this and that, running from place to place. We almost forget that we need to look inwards and think about connecting with each other and understanding ourselves and the world. But I think there's also another um, aspect to Rumi's work which is very appealing to us, and that is in the 13th century, where we think of as, you know, medieval times and all the way, you know, um, in the past, um, he is so open-minded about who we are. As far as he's concerned, uh, categories like race and gender and language and religion and all of that are um, artificial categories that we have created. Not that they are not important, but they should not mask our inner humanity and the ways that we have to connect with each other. So he says, you know, um, beyond the ideas of right doing and wrong doing, there's a field, I'll meet you there. Right. Right, that's a fa- that's a very famous line, in, you right. know, very often quoted. Um, and again, I would like to to emphasize that this is this is does not mean that he doesn't care about wrongdoing. In fact, the entire Mass Navi, which is um, twenty seven thousand verses of rhyming couplets, which he writes about how to get on the journey of life um, and develop into a um, whole human being, um, it's all about caring about oneself and others. It's about not harming others. It's about knowing what's right and wrong. So in other words, he's not saying that it's not important not to do um, wrong wrong things um, or right things, but rather he's saying that none of these categories should become prisons for us, that we should be able to see beyond them. And that sense of human joy and ecstasy enables us um, to see beyond these artificial uh, categories and connect with each other. Do you have any comments about what might be the historical origin of what's considered mysticism in Islam or Sufism? What is the historical origin of uh, uh, this way of thinking? Well, there is, first of all, when we say Sufism, there is such a wide range of it. You see um, people who, first of all, we have examples of these um, hermits or groups appearing from the early centuries uh, of Islam. Some are very extremist. You know, some people just completely leave the society and go live in caves or in some places outside cities. Um, others form uh, communities and do actually do social work and so forth. Some are very observant about the rules of religion. Others are not observant. So when we refer to uh, mysticism or um, Sufism, which is the, the Islamic version of it, um, we are talking about a, such a wide range of practice that it would be indeed very um, hard to 
put a finger on exactly where it developed. It depends on which century, which part of the uh, the Islamic um, uh, world we're talking about. Now, the major Sufi figures. Um, Let's talk about Rabia bin Basri. Rabia, yes. Those the, uh, let me quote one of uh, her um, um, well, statement attributed to her or actions, and then I would love to have your comment. Um, so she is carrying a flame in one hand, and she's carrying, carrying a bucket of water in the other, and somebody says, Rabia, what is this about? And she says, well, I have this flame, and I want to burn the hell down, heaven down. And uh, the, the fellow said, well, what's in the other bucket? And he says, she says, this is water, and I'm going to put the fires of uh, hell out. Now, on the surface, for Muslims, who are looking at the imagery, let's say, of Quran between hell and heaven, uh, this does seem like um, at a profound variance with that. Uh -huh. so please comment on it, and then if you have oh, a absolutely. moment, I, I talk to me about Rabia being uh, a woman Sufi of great eminence in yes. Islamic history. Yes. Well, actually, I'd love to comment about that. Please. Because there is a continuation to that. Okay. And she says, because I, so that no one ever worships you out of the f fear of hell or greed for paradise. So that is why she wants to, uh, first of all, it's obviously metaphorical, and, but she says, I would like to put out the fire of hell and also to, you know, uh, basically get the, get the ideas of hell and paradise out of the picture so that people worship you, God, for the love of God rather than for the fear of hell or for greed for paradise. Um, I can see that it still will be, um, if not shocking, not completely um, in line with some readings of some of the Muslims. But you know, I relate to this. I mean, I... Uh, I know, but I mean, it's, it really is... I mean, I relate to Rabia Basri's point of view. I, I'm attracted to it. I resonate with it. Right. right. Um, but, but the I issue think, that I raise... Particularly, that if, if, you, if you have the continuation of it, then you do see the logic that she brings in, which is a kind of countering the hypocritical worship, which she is probably commenting on the hypocritical worship at her time when people are either trying to be very pious in the hope of paradise or, or fear of hell. Um, so, but I think many of these mystics also said very shocking things on purpose. You know, the words that we know as shakhiyat today um, or the words of ecstasy, and many of them meant to shake people and make them think again about some of the concepts that they had adopted without um, much um, personal uh, investigation about it. The, almost across the board, all of the mystics believe that falling into ha habit, patterns of habit, and doing things without personal exploration and personal uh, agency is the worst enemy of the growth for human beings. So sometimes some of these... Um, shocking sayings are in order to make people say, what? Why is she saying that? So let me, you know, find out. 
Let me take this further. Let me tell my listeners again. My guest is Professor Fatima Kachavar. She is a professor of Persian languages and comparative literature and the chair of the Department of Asian and Near Eastern Languages and Literature at Washington University in St. Louis. She is going to be one of the speakers at the upcoming Ibn Arabi and Rumi conference at Open Center on November 4th and 5th. And um, uh, I gave the number earlier. I'll give it to you again, 212-219-2527, um, extension 140. Now, we, the, we are working against the clock, <laughs> um, okay. Professor Fatme. I, as I said, I would love to have you sometimes back. I think you are a wonderful person to listen to. Oh, uh, how, how do Persia, how, how does the modern young Persians, or let's say young people of Tehran, uh, in the closing half a minute, how do they look at Rumi? How well do they study Rumi? How closely do they relate to Rumi's vision of humanness? Oh, yeah, tremendously well. It, it's really incredible the number of books that get published about him in Persian, the number of groups that study him, young and old. And, in fact, it took the scholars in the Western world a while to discover him as a poet and a thinker, but throughout centuries he's stayed one of the most popular figures, and that continues um, to be the case today in Iran. That music tells me that it's time for us to take leave. <clears throat> Professor Fatima uh, Keshavars, thank you so kindly for giving us your time. And uh, I hope we have a chance and we can meet again on the air. Thank you very much for having me. I hope so, too. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good night. This has been Science, Health, and Healing. Please join me again tomorrow. Until then, may you be gracious, graceful, and generous in your spirit. Thank you.